All right, so just welcome to our first kind of, or at least my first um, teaching series here at St. Anne. Um, just wanted to give a, you know, kind of a brief introduction to, you know, where this is uh, in my heart and why I wanted to do this. You know, it wasn't really until seminary that I started to learn about scripture, right? And I really started to dive into it, especially to being able to pray with it. Um, before that, like I had been a Catholic for quite a long while, and that was never really on my radar as something that was, uh, you know, a thing that I would do or understand how to do. And I realized that there was just kind of a big lack of people teaching around, like, Scripture, how to understand it, right? And then what ends up happening, you know, is basically is that, like, there's this, like, large book, and I don't really know where to start, right? And so there's this kind of feeling of overwhelming, you know, uh, nature to that. And then on top of that, I'm busy, right? So it's overwhelming and I'm busy, which is a perfect recipe for never opening it, right, on my own, you know? So, you know, coming into, you know, um, St. Anne's and having my experience as a priest for the last couple of years, I realized that I wanted to really kind of um, teach on Scripture a little bit and also to kind of encourage people to be able to enter into it in a coherent way. So there's a book that I'm using for this, right? And I, I don't know how many of you brought actual, like, journals. Um, you know, you're going to need them at least next week. Um, because I'm going to be giving you a lot of really uh, insane, cool information. And I don't know how many of you saw the note about bringing your Bible, right? So, um, but when it comes to Scripture itself and, you know, understanding, like, how to go into it, it's remarkably simple once you're able to understand the story. But the book that I wanted to say that I'm primarily kind of riffing on is this book called Bible Basics for Catholics, <laughs> and it's awesome. It even has stick figures, and I'm not joking. They're actually really cool. Um, the, the author is uh, a man by the last name of Bergsma, and he wrote this about a year and a half, two years ago, and he's, uh, he's a high-level, you know, high-octane scripture scholar. He teaches in a seminary. He's intense, and his reflections are super beautiful. And his, yet him and his buddy Brant Petra, who's another like kind of big scripture scholar, have this thick tome about all like Old Testament commentary, and it's amazing. But Bergsma, what he ended up doing was he ended up taking all of that and he put it within 150 pages, right? So this man really understands how to teach, and he understands his material very well. So. With that being in mind, you know, the first thing I actually want to do is um, I just want to, you know, kind of give you this big picture, right? So we're talking about covenant, right? We're talking about basically the Lord's action of salvation for humanity, what the Lord has been desiring, right, since our creation, right? So the Lord has been desiring this intimate union with us. And that whole story, that whole narrative, right, of the Lord's desire for us is in this, right? This whole thing is a giant love letter, right? Every aspect of this uh, is basically open for conveying his love and his desire for us. And I just want you to be able to share in that experience with me. The other thing is, is that I also want us right, as a parish, to be able to understand where things like Mass has come from, or the Eucharist has come from, or baptism, reconciliation, right? What, like, you know, we can hear these Old Testament readings, right, during that first reading at Mass, and we can think, wow, okay, that's got some interesting things to say, but I don't really see how this connects at all, right, to when Father is lifting up the host, right? I don't really see that connection. So again, that's like the thing I really desire for us is to see that it's actually an organic development of the Lord's love over history, right? Over the entire course of human history, that this com we come from a place. And that last point, we come from a place, right? We're living in a post-Christian age, right? And also 
right, the modern world, right, is shifting away from the United States into other continents, Asia and Africa, right? So we're coming into this time and place when the rest of the world is really rejecting, right, a lot of the um, tenets that the Western world holds very dear to itself, right? The Western world, you can say right now, is trying to continue on a campaign for Christian values without Christ, right? The kingdom without the king, as it were. And what's ended up, ending up happening is, is that as the things are shifting away from the Western world towards the East, as it were, the new center, right? What we're being left with here in the West is a ton of infighting, right? About how do we make ourselves, you know, feel secure? What is dignity, right? all these different conversations and these narratives that are getting played out, right? People outside are tired, very tired and without hope, right? Everybody's tired and without hope. And the reason people end up being tired and without hope is because they don't understand their history, where they come from, their dignity. And our leg up on the world as Christians, as Catholics, is that we know exactly where we come from. We know exactly what our history is. And that history is beautiful. And it will help us live in our daily life. And so that's the last point. This is going to help us live in our daily life. Right? There's going to be a concrete connection. And in order for it to be a concrete connection, right, we have to have really enter the story well. So with that last point, basically, I'm going to be having homework for you all each week. Right? Now, literally, the homework is reading this. Right? You don't have to read anything else. There's nothing abstract that I'm going to be asking you to read. It's literally just going to be scripture. So if you haven't read chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis already, just kind of circle back around and do that. And I'm just going to say it now. The homework for next week right, is going to be Genesis 3 through 17 and chapters 20 through 22, right? We've got a lot of time in Genesis because we're dealing with two giant figures next week. So, how many people here brought their Bible? Okay, go ahead and hold it up. Actually, can I get a volunteer to come up? Um, Justin, can you, can you come up? So, okay. I want us to be able to be able to orient ourselves very quickly. So, Justin, I want you to open to the very middle of your Bible. Okay? So go ahead and hold it out to, the, to, to everybody's friends, right in the middle. Okay, now I want you to, you know, kind of keep it open to the middle, and I want you to have it on this side. Right? So, basically like this. Take this side and have it. Perfect half. Okay. Awesome. Now, where are we? So Justin is within 10 pages of the New Testament at this point, right? So go ahead and close that and hold that up. This side is the New Testament, and this side is the Old Testament. So all you do with your Bible is you open it up, into, make it into half, right, right in the middle. And then you take this other side, and you have it again, and you're essentially in literally, actually, I was like right on point. Great. You're literally in the New Testament, right? And that's how you break the Bible up. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. I am not assuming anything of anybody here. Uh, this is like straight basics from the beginning, okay? So, thanks, man. So, the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is literally. God's first work and continuing action with his chosen people, right? This has five of the covenants that we are going to cover. And this has one of the covenants, the last one, the covenant that we're in, right? In, in fact, the most important covenant, okay? So that's an easy way to orient yourself, okay? Half and then half. That's how you find your place in the, in the Bible. So just some, you know, Fundamentals here. How are we going to go about this whole class, okay? This whole teaching series. There's three lenses that we're going to look at, okay? And these are the, some things that I want you to write down. I want you to write down the word covenant, 
right? C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-S. Prophets, or I'm sorry, uh, mediators, and like a mediator. Media, and then T-O-R at the end. That's how you spell that, mediator. And then mountain. So covenant, mediator, mountain. Those are the three words. Those are the three things that we will be looking at consistently. Mountain. So the reason we're doing covenants, mediators, and mountains it's because those are the three things that are always present in each scene, right? In each covenant, basically. There is a deal that's struck, as it were. There's a person that is there, right? That is like represents something. And then there's also a location, which is always a mountain. So there's six covenants, okay? Six primary covenants. And the six covenants that we are covering are going to be with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally Jesus. Again, you can just kind of go back and re-listen to this. And we're going to be covering each one, right? And for tonight, we're going to be covering Adam along with these fundamentals. What is a covenant that God made with Adam? Then we're going to be going into Noah and Abraham. Then we're going to talk about Moses and David. That one's super intense. Buckle up for that one. Then we're going to talk about prophets and the prophecies about Jesus. Right? What did the Old Testament? What were the Old Testament prophecies about the Savior? And then finally, in the fifth class, we're going to talk about Jesus and the New Covenant and the Eucharist. Finally, I'm going, to add, I'm going to end every class right, with some tips on prayer, like life hacks with prayer. And then I'll repeat the homework. So we're going to launch into this right now. How do we actually, you know, interpret Scripture? How do we actually read Scripture? That's what this first fundamentals part is about before I go into Adam. Well, there's a couple things that we have to be able to recognize. First off, the Catholic belief, right, the belief of the church from ages unending, as it were, is that Scripture is both inspired by God and it's inerrant. In other words, without error. It's inspired and without error. In other words, it has an authority, an authoritativeness in our life. Inspired, you know, can be translated into literally like God-breathed, right? The breath of God is in this. Like, even though maybe a human mouth, it's God's lungs, as it were. What this means, and this is important, is that we do not believe like the way, like the same thing as like Muslims would believe about the Quran. This isn't an actual dictation, right? There wasn't an angel, right, sitting right next to the writer of any given book and like whispering word for word in that guy's ear, okay? It's actually more subtle and nuanced. It was like freely written. So the human person was the instrument, right? Had the human aspiration, right? Had an encounter with God, wanted to write that down, wanted to write what was in his prayer, wanted to write his experience. And that itself, that movement of heart to write, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's freely written, in other words. And only those things that the Holy Spirit wanted this man to write were written. So there's this mystery, in other words, of a kind of dual authorship, right? The other error that we have to avoid is this, is that Scripture is not just like freely written, like somebody just had a, like, one of these guys had a great idea about his prayer, just wrote it down, and then the Holy Spirit descended and just like rubber stamped it, right? There's no error, right? This is this crazy dual authorship. 
Just as, for example, one of the analogies I use about how we can understand the authorship of Scripture is by looking at the difference between, like, a mother and a daughter, or a father and a son, etc., right? When you look at a child in relation to his or her parents, right, you see that, like, you see the family characteristic coming through, but it's their own person, their own affect, right? So, in other words, the Holy Spirit's coming through this human aspect, right? Yet it's his own person with their own personality, their own cultural experience, their own childhood experiences, all these different things. So it's one of the great mysteries is that it's this dual authorship. When I say inerrant, right, what do we mean without error? In other words, the things that were written, right, were affirmed, right, by the Holy Spirit, right? They're like these truths that are affirmed by the Holy Spirit, that are like given by the Holy Spirit, are not going to lead us astray and they are exactly what he wanted written, exactly what he want written, especially according to the human dynamic of the time. And we'll get into some of those issues later when I say human dynamic of the time, because that's important for us to be able to interpret. So there's a couple types of different genres, right, in all of Scripture, okay? We have to read Scripture according to its particular genre, right? So first off, we don't read Scripture, right, in what I would say, a literalistic way. We have to read it literally, but not literalistically. My perfect example between those two, right, comes from this awesome book, right, that, you, that um, monks used to say you shouldn't read after, eight, after 9 p.m., but it's called The Song of Songs. So, and it's, a, it's this beautiful love poem between the Lord and us, okay? So, the difference between reading something literally and literalistically would be this. How beautiful you are, my love. How beautiful you are. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats frisking down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes as they come up from the washing. Each one has its twin. Your lips are scarlet red and your words enchanting. Your cheeks behind your veil are halves of pomegranate. Your neck is a tower of David built as a fortress. Okay, so if you're reading that literalistically, this woman has this giant neck that looks like a tower, right? You know, her hair is like goats literally coming off her head, etc., etc. That's a literalistic reading, right? The literal reading, the literal sense would be basically the common sense understanding of this, right? that this author is using metaphor to describe the beautiful attributes of the beloved, right? He's using these beautiful metaphors. Does that make sense? So you transpose that all the way to other parts of Scripture. You, we have to read something in a literal way, but not in a literalistic way. And that will have important ramifications for us. Going on from there, one thing I want to say about you know, this sense of Scripture is, is that we don't use the Bible as like an encyclopedia of all of this knowledge, right? It tells absolute truth, tr like it tells truth without error, but it's not in the sense of like the way that you would open a science book. Obviously, with Genesis, for example, you're going to open that, right? And, you're, and the question is like, well, is it really seven days? You know, etc. However, the author in that time is explaining, right, what the truth of creation is, what the deepest truth of creation is, right, according to his understanding of events at the time, right? We don't have to use, right, his understanding of phenomena, right, as the primary way that we look at it. We actually have to look into what is the truth of what he's saying. So, and there are also types of lit literature that need to be read in context, right, of everything else. So what are these different kinds of literature? There's historical literature, right, historical narrative, telling the facts about something, okay? There's poetic literature, which I, some of which I just read. There's apocalyptic literature, right, right, Book of Revelation, the Book of Daniel, right? 
very crazy psychedelic events happening, right? Yet they, even they convey truth, but we can't read them like a history book. And there's like wisdom literature, right? Coming from like Ben Sira, et cetera, like this. You know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's wisdom literature, that classic line. So under all these, God is speaking about his desire to save us. He uses all these different means, different genres to speak about his love for us. And it's documented on all these beautiful ways. So the last thing is like what I would say is about this part of scripture and about literature is accommodation or tones, right? So remember, like I was saying before, God's words are mediated through human affect and understanding. It's like kind of the way that when you have a small kid and they're like two or three and you have to explain to them something, you kind of, you have to condescend to them, right? You have to you know, bend down and speak in their language. The Lord does that for us and has done that for us over history, right? So we will, the human author will receive these insights from the Lord that will bear further development later in salvation history. We can see this in relation to, for example, uh, God's action for the Hebrews in Exodus versus God's action for all of us in the New Testament through Jesus, right? We can talk about the Lord's mercy in, in Exodus, but it looks kind of intense and a little bit severe, but we see in the context that there's this deep and true and everlasting mercy in his actions. However, it becomes more explicit over time, especially with Jesus, which is God made flesh, God become man. The mercy is explicit. So over time, this kind of, the condescension of the Lord's language, right, becomes less and less. It becomes more explicit. But we have to keep that in mind, especially as the literature develops. So the very last thing that I want to say about Scripture is, is that how do we, what are like the lenses by which we read it, right? What's the sense that we should be going into it with? There's basically... Five, well, there's two primary, what's called senses of literature, right? And what does a sense mean? It means that there's a kind of a way of understanding it, okay? An openness of heart, a kind of characteristic of an open heart in the way you need to read it. So the first one is the literal sense, okay? We have to read this in a literal way, right? What does that mean, right? The literal sense, right, in reading scripture is, is that we pay attention to the meaning of words, like what's the original Hebrew or the original Greek? What are the expressions that are being used? What's the historical context, the facts, the events, all these different things? And, but we need to take that, right, in that context, that literal context, and go deeper with it and combine it with another sense. It's called the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, the literal and the spiritual go together always. You never separate them, but you can make a distinction. And the spiritual sense is super important because it allow, it's, it's allows us to see what's being said in faith, right? It's a gift. And it's also an, an action of our mind, our intellect that we can employ. So there's three modes of the literal, of the spiritual sense. One is like the allegorical or maybe I would say spiritual sense. The spiritual sense, it's about, like, it's kind of prophetic. So how is this one event that we're reading in Scripture pointing beyond itself to this greater mystery, right? So, for example, the prophecies of the Old Testament are a classic example. What is Isaiah saying about the coming of the Savior? How's his words pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah? What is Jesus' words in the New Testament talking about our final union with God? You know, how are these mysteries revealed? And this one is in related to the gift of faith, right? It helps us with our faith, with the virtue of faith. The second spiritual sense is moral, right? How do people in events in the Old Testament or Jesus himself in the New Testament or these epistles from Paul prompt me to develop virtuous habits, to grow in, in, in integrity, in dignity, right? There's a, there's this moral sense, and it helps me actually with charity, spurs me on to charity, right? How many times, like, there's a parishioner here, that, and she just loves it when we read Amos, right? Because it really helps her. The prophet Amos helps this one parishioner, right? And because it spurs her 
to be able to look at her life in this new way, especially in relation to her neighbor. She just jams on Amos. I just love it when she talks about it, but she gets so lively. The other one is, this one is a complicated word, anagogical. <laughs> anagogical. This one actually helps us with our hope. What do I mean? Anagogical simply means this. It's pointing us to the, what the Lord is desired, what kind of union and relationship the Lord wants with us. Okay? It's about relationship, especially relationship going forward in the future in relation to my own life. Right? So an example of this would be I'm reading um, an anagogical reading right, of Jesus in the, in the boat when it's stormy. We all, know, we all kind of familiar with that, that story. He's asleep in the boat and everything's going crazy. The disciples start freaking out, right? And they're like, Lord, Lord, save us, right? And he goes, oh, wait, why are you guys worrying? I'm here. I'm just tired, basically, is what he's saying, right? And he calms the storm immediately. An anagogical or forward-thinking reading of that, right? Spur, like coming, welling up in my heart would be real, realizing that the Lord is going to be in my circumstance, be in the boat with me, no matter what trial I'm going through in the future. Right? So it has this forward-looking thing. So this one is for hope. So. Alrighty. So let's go ahead and just dive in, okay? Let's dive into Adam, right? So we're in Genesis, okay? Genesis is this beautiful... Uh, like narrative, this beautiful story, this history of our life. And in chapters one through th uh, three, we're basically recalling creation. Right? The author or authors of this particular book are recalling right, the deep truths of humanity's creation and its meaning. There's a great distinction that we can make here. Is that a lot of times we uh, don't like the word myth Right? But for the church, and also for many religions, right, myth is like super truth. Right? Myth is like a way of telling the literal truth of reality in a figurative way. It's a way, it's like, for example, it's why everybody like kind of resonates on a much more low frequency to like Star Wars. Right? You know? It's like there's this great hero, you know, you know, coming back from nothing, you know, big surprise, saves the day, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Or like why our superhero movies, our Marvel Universe is so expansive. It's not just because Disney wants to make you a slave and sell you everything. It's also because these stories can be very compelling, right? So there's these deep truths that are told, right, in this narrative that are absolutely foundational for us to believe in. So... I already went through those six major covenants, but I want to be able to explain what is a covenant, okay? What is a covenant? A covenant, uh, we hear these, this word covenant at Mass. You actually even hear it when I do the consecration of the blood, right? You know, um, I actually don't memorize it because I don't want to just gloss over it when I'm saying Mass. Um, oh my gosh, this is the blood of the everlasting covenant. Anyway, basically is what I say. Part of, this part of the anaphora. Anyway, but we hear this covenant language in certain parts of our liturgy, and a lot of times it can just be easy to gloss over. So, what is a covenant? A covenant can be described as being, it's a contract without property, but with persons. Okay? Contract without property, it's a contract with persons instead. And you're like, okay, big whoop, I have contract with people all the time, I'm a business owner, right? Well, it's a little bit more than that because in, in a covenant, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact legal uh, definition. Bill, what is it when you, uh, you, like when you don't fulfill your end of the uh, contract? Breach. All right, sweet. When, you, when one party breach, we have two lawyers over there, it's awesome. Anyway, so when we breach a contract, what happens to the contract? It becomes null. It just it, it disintegrates, right? However, with a covenant, when one party breaches the contract, the other party stays faithful to it. The contract is not revoked, right? So the Lord is making this contract, this covenant with us, 
and we breach the, con- the terms of the contract, but the Lord stays faithful. The Lord continues to pursue. Does that make sense? That's the biggest thing I want to drive home about a covenant. The second thing is this, is that a covenant also brings someone into family relationship, like blood relationship, makes you blood. The only real kind of modern equivalent that we have today in America is essentially adoption. Right? We're used to, in the current cultural context of the U.S., we're used to, um, even though we have this deep desire for total stability in marriage, we really don't have that, right? And so we're used to seeing uh, people coming in and out of it. But the place where we are not used to seeing that is actually within adoption, right? Adoption, there's a legal aspect to adoption. And it's very rare that somebody leaves the adoption contract. It's like really, really rare that somebody is disowned or somebody leaves that family. So it's like literally bringing somebody else from the outside and making them blood. So those are the, just to repeat those three things, okay? One is, is that this is about family relationship, about adoption. You hear me preaching on adoption all the time. If one party has a breach of contract, the other one still stays in it and is faithful to the contract. And this is with people. So, the second thing was mediator. What does mediator mean? Now, I've been in, I was in seminary for like nine years, so mediator is like this word that I'm just super familiar with, and I love it. But most people aren't wor- you know, familiar with the word mediator, right? A mediator, by the way, when you ever hear the word like doctor, right, or mediator, or creator, the T-O-R is representative of the person. Like, that's the it's title. Right, it's, it's, anyway, but mediator, right, is one person who represents a whole group. So let's say that, for example, uh, there's the queen of, uh, of uh, Magnolia, right, and then there's the king of Queen Anne, right, and they want to come into an alliance, and they want to merge their two kingdoms, right? This is a weird example, but, you know, people kind of act that way. Anyway, so... And they come into this contract, so they, uh, so they get married, right? They go into a covenant, and the two kingdoms merge. That king and that queen represent, though, a whole family, a whole people, right? So you would say, in a, certain, in a lot of places, you'll hear this in the Old Testament, you'll hear an individual called by the people's name, by the ethnic group, Israel, right? Or they'll say, Jacob and that will represent all the Jews, right? Because it's through this one person, right, that the whole is represented through. So these covenants are always made with this one person representing the whole group, and that's the mediator. Pretty clear? Awesome. The last one is mountains, mountaintop. Not a lot of description I need to give to us for that. We have this giant one that will kill us one day, right, which is over there, but... These mountaintops. Why is it the Lord uses these mountaintops to make these covenants? The reason is, is because on one hand, when you're high up, right, if you're thinking about heaven as a spatial area, maybe, right, you think of heaven's up there, right, the higher you get, the closer you are to God, right? Simple elevation gain, right? Higher up, more close to God. The other one is, is that it's a lonely place. Right? When you go up on top of a mountain, right, you're not normally going to find a city. Right? You're not normally going to find a town. Right? You're going to be by yourself. Right? In other words, there's no distractions. You have concentration. You go high up because you need to be focused, be able to hear. The other thing is, is that you are, have this high view of everything. Right? You, you're able to see everything around you. And that gives you two key abilities. One is that everything down there in the valley below is relativized. Right? All the things, in other words, that I think are important in my life, that I get worked up over, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? you know, get put in their place. Does that make sense? Right? You see how small things can be. And you see their true importance when you're on top of a mountain. 
And the last aspect is that you see those things in relation to the other things, right? You can see your buddy's house, right, in relation to your other neighbor's house that you don't like, and they happen to be next door to each other, and you've been passing one by this whole time, avoiding that one guy, right? You see things in relation to the others. It's in context. So that's always important. That's why the Lord wants to make covenants on top of a mountain. So, going into Genesis 1 through 12, okay? So, what we have here, right? You know, if you have your journal, um, what I would, I'm not actually not going to have you do the drawing exercise, but what you can do is you can make, basically, you can take the seven days of creation, okay? You can make them into six blocks like this, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then with a roof on top, which is the seventh, okay? And on one side is there's the form, and the other one is the context, or the contents. When it says that in the beginning there was nothing, right? It was uh, like formless and void, right? In other words, it was without contour, without shape, and with no content, right? The Lord made something out of that. So what he ended up doing, right, we, is that creation ends up kind of developing, right? The Lord develops creation in this coherent way, and finally, on the sixth day, he creates humanity, creates Adam in our context here. And then he ends up creating Eve. And then right after that, he rests on the seventh day, which is actually the day, last day of creation. And so, why is this all important? Right? It's because is that creation is essentially is made in the context of a temple, of worship. The last day is for Sabbath. Right? The last creation is Sabbath, which is the time for rest. Right? The time for gratitude. Right? The time for relationship with God. The last day, the highest point of creation, as it were, right, is the Sabbath rest. So all of creation is meant to resemble, right, a temple in that sense, this kind of metaphorical temple. And the reason we know this is because throughout, right, the rest of Scripture, whether it's in the Psalms or in parts of Exodus, they'll describe, like, the temple itself in Jerusalem, for example, as being adorned like Eden. That's because we're in Eden here. In Genesis, we're in Eden. And so it's a common experience, right, to hear the temple talked about as Eden. The thing I want to say about Adam is, what was the point of Adam's life, right? How do we, after we see creation is made as a temple, right, a temple that has all of its orientation towards worship, what is our role? What is Adam's role in this place? What is the point of his life? Well, the first thing that you'll notice from Genesis 1 through 2 is these different roles. And this is actually the covenant. The Lord makes Adam, and he gives him these roles. And these roles are the sign of the covenant, right? This familial relationship, this adoption, as it were. First off, he's made in the image and likeness. What does that mean, made in the image of likeness? This is point one, image and likeness. Image and likeness is, again, like going to, like looking at a father and a daughter or a son and a daughter or a father and a daughter, et cetera, et cetera, right? Family resemblance, right? We see that the, basically the Lord makes Adam in his resemblance, makes Adam and Eve in his resemblance. This is, means that he's a son of God. Eve is a daughter of God. And what does that entail? Like, what does that mean, being made in the image and likeness, being a child of God, this sonship, this daughtership? It means that you're an heir. You're an heir to everything. You will receive everything, right? Just as a way, like, for example, your father or your mother had a deeper, more intensive relationship with you than they did with their best friend, right? Like, for example, you're owed more, right, by your father or your mother than your father or mother's best friend is, right? You are the heir. You're the heir of your father or your mother. So in the same way, we are the heirs of God and his love. 
And this is as opposed to being a friend. So the first one is son of God or daughter of God. So that's the first role, to be a son, to be a daughter. And then he tells Adam to keep it and to till it. Keep the garden and till the garden. In Hebrew, it's the literal translation is to serve and to guard. To serve and to guard. And this is an uncommon expression. We actually don't see this until later in the Old Testament in one place. Only really in one place do we ever see this language, and it's in relation to priests in the temple. So, in other words, Adam is given this priestly role to serve and to guard. If you wanted to, like, give Father Colin, like, a, a motto to live the rest of his life as a pastor here at St. Anne's, it's to serve and to guard. The other thing that the role that the Lord gave him was kingly. Okay, so priestly, son of God, priestly, kingly. And how do we know that? It says he was given dominion over all creatures. Adam and Eve were given dominion over all creatures. In other words, there's this regal role to this. Second to last, he was given a prophetic role. How do we mean prophetic? Right, to be a prophet. Why was he a prophet? Because he was put in charge of naming. Right? You know, in Old Testament, when you name something, it means that you have like, the ability as, you're basically the creator of this thing. Right? You're the, only the creator right, has the ability to name what it creates. Right? Just in the same way when you have a child, right, you have as, as a mother and a father right, the right, right to name the child. Right? It would be super weird right, if some rando on the bus says, your son or daughter's name is so-and-so. Right? That would be, that's not right. You know? That, that, that you know, rubs up against us pretty harsh. So, he has this ability to name, which only God can name his creation. So there's an extension here. So he has this prophetic role because it's speaking God's truth. God's ability to name is God's truth. So lastly, his role is also as a bridegroom, right? Eve is created, right? And he marries Eve, as it were. Eve as a high point of creation, by the way. In, in traditional understanding of creation, because the woman was created last, she's actually the pinnacle of physical creation. So anyway, take that to the bank. It's awesome. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, essence of my essence, being of my being. That's covenant language, right? He's using, Adam is using covenant language to come into relationship with Eve. And so he brings her, in other words, bringing her immediately into family, family relationship. And that's what defines him. And that's what defines her as this family relationship. So in other words, Adam is the first bridegroom. So he represents all of humanity in that way as the bridegroom. So simply a recap. Just want to just say like, there's some words here, son of God, priestly role, kingly role, prophetic role, and bridegroom. Where do we hear the words priest, prophet, and king? What? Jesus, but also what liturgy, what ritual do we hear that? Baptism. I anoint a child, I christen a child with, with holy chrism, right? Because I'm signifying their identity that they've been given through Jesus in the action of baptism. This child is made a priest, prophet, and king, period. It's the role. So we actually still use this language commonly. So where do we go from here in, these, in this aspect, right? Let's talk about simply these roles, right, and the mediator himself. So we have the son of God or the daughter of God, the kingly or queenly, the priestly, the prophetic, and the bridegroom or the bride, right? These are the roles, right? This is a covenant. So what is the point of our life in this context, okay? What is the point of our life? In this context, the point of our life is to be able to return to that, to those primary identities, but in an even more intensive way because of Jesus, all right? So, all of us are being called to these roles, being called back to these identities constantly. And all of Scripture is going to be calling us back to those identities. 
And we're going to be looking at the rest of the figures, these mediators in each of these covenants, right, through these different roles. Priest, prophet, and king, bridegroom, son of God. What does it mean to be, to, this is like a concrete thing that I would want, like just want you to really understand. What does it mean to have a kingly or queenly identity as a Christian? Well, first off, we have this kind of dominion, right, over ourselves, right? We have a way of conquering, we have an ability to conquer sin and to conquer Satan, even. It's not primarily political, but it's a personal aspect. And also, we have an ability to reign over our houses, to order and govern our own homes and our own relationships, even our workplaces to a certain extent, according to the purposes of the Lord. What does a priestly like, identity mean? How am I a priest? Right? Well, there's the ministerial priesthood, which, of which I'm a part, and then there's the common priesthood, the normal priesthood, in other words, right? the usual priesthood. And to be a priest of God right, means to offer sacrifice. But how do I offer sacrifice? What does it even mean? Well, think of it this way. The word sacrifice comes from the phrase sacrum facere, to make holy. Sacrum facere, to make holy. And how do you make something holy? By inviting the presence of God into it. Right? So you invite your, the presence of God into your life, into your prayer, into your heart, into your work, into your family, whatever it may be. And his presence, right, dwelling there, makes that thing, that space, that context, relationship, more and more holy. And you become yourself the sacrifice to the Lord. You're able to offer sacrifice in that way. Or think of it this way. In that process, I become transformed, and I myself become the sacrifice. At Mass, we have this experience. When the gifts are being presented at Mass, what does that represent? The, the gifts of the bread and wine, you know, there's always like, sometimes it's like the two awkward kids that we have, and they like, the awkward kids like bumble up there with the gifts, and then there's like the t- overly tall adult, right? Sorry, Tom. And, uh, and he's carrying, you know, carrying the cash, right? What do those gifts represent? Those gifts, as they process up, and I'm receiving them, right, actually represent your life, everything of your life personally. They represent you. And what happens to them? I, as a ministerial priest, right, take that and I call upon the Holy Spirit, right, to transform those gifts, a.k.a. you, right, into his body and blood. You become Jesus. It's crazy. So, moving on. Prophet. Prophet simply means to speak God's word, right? To literally share and explain his truth, his love, his presence, to speak that, right? To our children, to our spouse, to our friends, or at work, etc. And as I was saying before, as an heir, nothing is withheld as a son or daughter of the Lord. And in relation to being a bride or a bridegroom, right? Super interesting thing, because all, well, I'm not going to go, that's too much theology, but basically, the bridegroom of the nuptial, the, the matrimonial aspect of this identity is meant that the Lord wants complete union with us, complete union with our soul, right? Total union with him, total love with him. So all of this, you know, just kind of taking it back to the 30,000 feet or back to the scripture, right? right? In all of salvation history, the reason we talk about Adam in the first covenant here it's because Jesus is going to become the new Adam. We hear this in some of the language, especially from the uh, letters after the Gospels. Jesus as the new Adam. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, you talked about the covenant itself, which includes those roles. The covenant with Adam is those roles, which we're always returning to. We talked about Adam himself as a mediator. And then, but what about the mountain? Well, actually... Eden is actually considered an, an, a mountain, right? So why do we say this? It's because in Genesis 2, 10 through 14, it says all the rivers flowed from it, right? The rivers are flowing out of it. So that's high place. Right? The other thing about that is, is that other places and prophets and parts in the scripture actually refer to Eden as Mount Eden, right? As a holy mountain, right? The place where God first dwelled. In other words, right? Uh, and the other thing is, is that... Um, 
you know, we also see in this description of Eden is all these precious gems. It says like there's just like freaking diamonds laying around everywhere. It's kind of crazy. And then there's gold. It's just easy to get these precious materials. Um, and most of the temples, and this is kind of backlogging or working from the back end, most like the temple itself in Jerusalem was adorned, right? It was painted like Eden, but also adorned with the same jewels that you would see in description of, the, uh, of Genesis. The last part about that that I want to just kind of say about Eden itself, about Mount Eden, what else is there? There's the tree of life, right? And the tree of good and evil, right? The tree of life uh, represents basically immortality. And the tree, uh, the knowledge of good and evil is, is God's own knowledge from his understanding. And we also see angels, cherubim, right? In other words, this is like a really intense place, right? There's all these precious stones. There's fruit everywhere. We're on a mountain, right? There's angels, right? And then there's like eternity and the presence of God. This is essentially the sanctuary of God's heart, right? Eden is this beautiful, wonderful place. So simply to conclude for tonight, I want to give some life hacks on prayer, okay? Next week, we're going to be going into Noah, right? Noah's covenant, which is actually pretty simple. Bottom line with Noah, things got really bad really quick after the fall. <laughs> You'll read about that in your homework. And then the Lord wants to press restart because things are that bad, right? And then, right, the, and then the Lord was basically saying, no, I'm not going to do that, right? Again, that condescending, like the language of condescension, we have to think only in human terms about the Lord's thought process. He doesn't really have one. He just knows or is. And then we're also going to talk about Abram or Abraham and the covenant. And that one's beautiful too, right? Our fa fa our Abraham, our father in faith, right? Paul talks a lot about a uh, Abraham in Romans, in Galatians, and so on and so forth. Abraham looms large in our tradition. So we're going to be going through those two mediators and the covenants that, was, that were made with them and where they were made, okay? And, and we're just going to simply walk through them, right? So the homework for next week, before I give us prayer tips, is this, okay? Again, if you haven't read Genesis 1, chapters 1 and 2, go ahead and circle back around and read chapters 1 and 2. We're also going to be reading chapters 3 through 17, and that deals a lot with the fall and then with Noah, and chapters 20 through 22. It's going to be dealing a lot with Abraham. So, Genesis basically 1 through 17 and 20 through 22. And it's, and it's kind of like exciting reading. You get a lot of tidbits there, right? Um, and I'm particularly, uh, you know, and by the way, if anybody ever says that scripture is boring, they just haven't read it. Um, just, <laughs> there are so many wild stories. It's way more interesting than sometimes people want to give credit for, especially when they don't know it. So, with that, I just want to go into some prayer tips. Okay, so what I'm going to start doing, if you signed up on Flocknote, right, for um, this course, basically I'm going to, like, this is where I'm going to be proposing the prayer challenge, okay? So initially it's going to be 14 days, right? And it's just going to be kind of some introductory practices to prayer, right? But what I'd like us to do, could really consider, is to do 15 minutes of silent prayer a day. And I'd like to propose scripture, because we're going through it, as the material that we use to go into prayer. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, so do I just read this thing and then something happens? Well, that actually can happen. Yes, that will happen, actually. Um, but, right, if you're in a particularly dry place that day, right, you know, how do I use all of my humanity, right? How do I really enter into prayer? That's what I'm going to explain today. So there'll be reminders every day about different ways of praying for 14 days. But below that, I want us to try to commit to like 15 minutes of silent prayer a day, okay? 15 minutes, especially if we're new at prayer, right? New at silence, and, you know, that can seem like an eternity. I just want to honor that, okay? Right? I started off from, from, no, from nothing, right, at one point, right? And I remember, you know, the first time that I even stayed silent for an hour in prayer, and I was just like, you know, clawing at the pew, you know, there's nail marks, you know, but I promise you, right, 
the Lord really works, right? Really works. And you stay in it to the last minute, right? If your 14 minutes of prayer just suck, right? Nothing's happening. Don't despair of that last minute. The Lord can do amazing things in 60 seconds, right? Stay in it to the end. So, prayer tip. That's the first one. The second one is, so first one, stay in it to the end. Do the 15 minutes, stay in it to the end. Second prayer tip is a little bit more involved, right? Maybe you'll want to read from Genesis, right? Or maybe you're going to want to maybe read from one of the pieces of scripture that are coming up at, at Sunday Mass or what have you. Or maybe there's a favorite gospel. I always say start with Mark because it's the shortest, right? And it's like action-packed, right? There's not even transitive verbs. It's just like he, his tenses suck. So it's just simply start somewhere where you're most attracted. Maybe it's Mass readings, the Gospel of Mark, or Genesis, what we're reading through right now. And the thing I want to say about this is that you have to put yourself in the scene. Now, I kind of prefaced that when we were going through with the stations, putting yourself in the scene. What does that mean? Well, it means that you literally imagine yourself present. Okay? Literally imagine yourself present. Now, you're thinking to yourself, how, why, why am I going to go through this imaginative exercise and something about God is going to happen? Well, let me make a pitch. Okay, so first thing is, Rich, uh, right now, if I ask you, how do you get home? Do you need to look at your, uh, at your phone for the map in order to know how to get home from here? No, right? When I say, like, how do you get home, you immediately, image comes right into your brain, right? That's called imagination. That's actually the function of imagination. It's to give us a true image, right, of reality, right? Stored in our memory. Memory is also uses imagination to recall, right? The reason I bring that example up is because imagination can convey truth. This is opposed to a fantasy. Okay? Fantasy never conveys truth. Right? Fantasy, and I'm talking about the genre because I'm reading a fantasy book now, but um, like uh, fantasy as an exercise of, of the mind, right, is about unreality, right? It's about, it, it drives you into selfishness, right? It's the kind of thing that where I usually call it like the quick step, right? Fantasy is when I start like having fast steps towards sinning somehow, right? You always notice when somebody's going to sin, when their pace and their heartbeat pick up, right? And they start moving really quick towards that thing. It's, their fantasy is starting to ramp up, right? It's unreality. And it keeps you, like, kind of navel-gazing and, and turned in on yourself. As Augustine would say, incurvatus se, turned in on yourself. Anyway, but imagination actually conveys truth. So if you simply open yourself up to prayer, you say, Lord, I want you to show up in my prayer. That itself is a prayer, right? It's a request. Lord, show up, right? And then use your imagination to put yourself in the scene just as you can manipulate your own imagination. Even more so, the Lord can, like, can form, shape, and inform your imagination, okay? So you put yourself in the scene, and let's say that, let's go back to that image I used at the very beginning of Jesus in the boat, okay? Imagine that you're in the boat with Jesus, right? Or something might be crazy, crazy happen in your image and you're actually like floundering on the side of the boat. You actually fell out somehow, right? Any of those things are legitimate, okay? Give yourself permission to allow the scene to look crazy, right? To, to be off script, as it were. So you put yourself in your scene and you're in the boat, right? You know, and you, it's like, what, what are the senses that are coming about, right? What does the boat feel like? What does the wood feel like? How hard is the wind driving? Is it cold? What do I feel, in other words? Right? What, do I, what is the wind here like? Right? What, are the, what are my friends, the disciples, who are clamoring around, freaking out, what do their voices sound like? When Jesus wakes up and speaks to me, oh, you of little faith, what does that sound like to me? What does Jesus himself look like? He just came from the countryside. He was preaching, curing, and healing for like days on end with little sleep. So he looks tired, he has bags under his eyes. He's probably sweaty. What does he look like? And then what does he look like when he looks at me? 
So you just close your eyes and you allow yourself to go into that place in using what's called spiritual senses, which are simply the senses of your imagination that correspond to your actual physical senses. And the Lord can take your imagination and can impact it, right? And shape it according to his purposes to convey love, to convey his truth, to convey his impression, to convey simply what he's thinking. And I promise you, it makes prayer fast, right? When you do that, prayer goes fast. No longer will you be sitting in the pew, right? Like I was, like with my nails just kind of going down, you know, it will be really lovely. And all you do is you say, okay, Lord, be present in my prayer. Be present to me. Simply invoke his name. Second part is put yourself in the scene, right? And then just simply read that scripture and read it very slow. So that's called using imaginative prayer. It's the one I actually lean on the most uh, personally. So my friends, I just want to conclude by saying thank you for being here. Told you I would be getting out of here by 8.30, and so I'm on time, by the the grace of God, on time. I've talked for literally 56 seconds over an hour. So, since I started recording, recording. So let's just go ahead and end in a prayer, and can I give you a blessing, all right? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, simply through the gift of the ministerial priesthood that you have shared with me through your Son. Simply want to consecrate my friends, my family here, my parishioners, in your love. In this coming week, in their weekend, in their moments of silence of prayer, in their reading of your Holy Scripture, where you convey your love and your truth, I beg you simply to speak clearly to them about your love, about your desire for them and their story, about your will for them, your will which has a view of their own heart's desires. Help them simply see you clearly. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. All right, friends, this will be uploaded by tomorrow, right? So again, you can, uh, I'll have the link on the website, and it'll be on Spotify. If you have Spotify, it'll also be on anchor.fm.